So now we're going to shift to today's scripture reading, uh, which is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. So just... To practice, when someone reads the scripture and says, this is the word of God, we could all respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's, let's practice that. Because we come from all very different traditions. Actually, Ali comes from a very Lutheran tradition as well. Different people. I grew up Presbyterian, now I'm Baptist. It's really confusing. Uh, but I think this is a good practice. So when we say, this is the word of God, we say, thanks be to God. Okay, thank you, five of you guys. Really appreciate that. Uh, Colossians 1, 24, 29. I'll just read one more time. This is Paul speaking to the church in Colossae, a young church, struggling church. Uh, false teaching is prevalent there. They're challenging this idea of, is Christ really enough? And Paul now turns their attention to verse 24, and he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings. Interesting combination of words. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. Okay, six people, great. Um, this is the third message of a total seven messages that we're going through, the letter of Colossians. And, this, and if you missed it, there's a lot of context. The first two messages, I want to encourage you guys to go on our YouTube and, and, and watch those. Um, and, and, and this is really actually a letter, actual letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Colossae, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so Paul, in the beginning of chapter 1, in the beginning of the letter, he opened this letter with these profound words concerning Christ. And we have been going over that uh, last two times I preached. And Paul begins saying, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You cannot see God, yes, but you see God through Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. He is first before all things. The creator God, he says, Jesus is the creator God, and all things were created by him and for him and towards him. We talked about that last time I preached. 
And really the deliverer, he's the deliverer who has reconciled us through his own death. That's summary of beginning of chapter 1 all the way to verse 23. And this is important because one of the primary reasons, as we've discussed before, for the occasion of the letter. There's a reason why Paul wrote this letter from prison. Yes, it is to encourage the struggling church, but really to encourage the struggling church who's been deeply distressed by these false teachers. Wolves in sheep's clothing coming. And these false teachers, and, and many scholars believe these, this is the beginning of Gnosticism. And they believe that Christ was only one of many images of God. He wasn't the creator God, but only one of many images of God. Therefore, you needed to do A, B, C, D, and Christ in order for you to be truly saved. That's the argument that these people came against the gospel. So Paul reassures the church from the opening lines that it's only in Christ, the image of invisible God, the creator of all things, the firstborn of all creation, only in Christ we find our way to true salvation. And then now having firmly reassured the major foundation of Christian faith, starting verse 24, our passage, Paul now begins to share more personally. He, he really gets to the heart of the mushy part of the letter where he's sharing personally his experience as a minister of the gospel and he really talks about the the topic of many things but i think suffering as i've been i was preparing this week the topic of suffering came to my mind so he begins in verse 24 three things about suffering today if you're taking notes three things the joy of suffering he says i rejoice in my suffering for you the reality of suffering paul talks about that the call to suffer with one another. So the joy of suffering, the reality of suffering, and the call to suffer with one another. So first, joy of suffering. Verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering for you, which is a complete juxtapositional idea to a modern-day culture, the idea of rejoicing in suffering. You know what we call that outside of church? That's called, you're crazy, <laughs> right? Rejoicing in suffering. It's like you've suffered so much, you're just laughing. You're like, I just, you've seen it, right? In movies and, and experiences where you, you suffer so much, you just laugh. Um, but that's not what Paul's talking about, right? But in our, in our modern day culture, we live in a culture, uh, we really love success. Social media, what we post, what we eat. And, and we live in a culture where we, we do our best to try to hide any kind of pain, struggles, or failures. I mean, I know that's a generalization of our culture, but I think that's, that's we can understand that. Case in point, you know, if, if you know me, I'm totally into tech. Like, I, I love, if I wasn't a pastor, I told people I'll make, I'll work for like a phone company and make like phone that I want. I, there's no perfect phone. I love all types of mobile devices. I was talking to Jay this week. Jay makes chips, and I was like, oh, I love that, right? Case in point, we, we, live in a, we live in a world that really, really love uh, success and find things. I keep up with most of the new phones that are released. Like I, that, when I wash dishes, I watch YouTube, and what I watch is these nerdy tech YouTubers unboxing. If you don't know this culture, I'm sorry, I apologize. People just unbox these new devices, and it's, it's, it's really weird if, you, if, you, if you're not into that, right? Over the last several years, you know, the, 
everyone has cell phones, right? If you don't have cell phone, you're, you're really cool. But most, most of us have cell phones, right? And these cell phones, we update like every two years, every three years. Uh, and the, one of the reasons why we update our cell phone is because of cameras. Cameras have gotten so good that actually you don't see many people with DSLRs. I have a pastor friend, he carries around his like little, you know those like little digital cameras from like 2010? I always make fun of him, like, why do you carry this around? Like, he's an older, older guy. I'm like, your phone is better. Your phone has a better camera, right? So every year there's this intense competition between Apple, Samsung, Google, and other Chinese companies to be the camera king. iPhone 14 came out. They claimed to be the camera king. Samsung, camera king. Google, pixel, camera king, right? Um, and about five and six years ago, because I've been a tech nerd for such a long time, Main focus was improving the hardware, right? The lenses, the sensors. I don't want to bore you with all the details. But, but you know, but over like last three or four years, the top companies are more focused on ability to automatically edit the photo. So let me explain. This is called computation photography, okay? I'm not, I'm not an energy. But most, if you have like, like a phone that's less than three years old, actually, the, when you take a picture... When you get your phone out, when you take a picture, the picture you take is not the picture that's being recorded in your, cam in your, in your phone. It's actually, there's a process called computation photography where the, 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 every phone has a chip inside there and it instantly edits all the blemishes. You're, you got acne problem, they'll clean it out. You got bad lighting, they'll clean it out. If you don't like certain object behind you, they can erase it. It's called magic eraser. And literally will edit out any blemishes, any sort of uh, things that's off-putting to the picture. So the photo you see when you take a picture with your nice iPhone or Samsung phone or Pixel phone is not actually reality. This is philosophical now. Like we're getting to a place where, and Google just, uh, I mean, maybe one of the companies, I won't mention, maybe we'll edit that out. They just came up with this new technology where now if you buy their phone they'll they'll go through all of your old photos 10 years old 15 years old and they'll literally edit those photo photos for you so 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 it's really this edited version of reality that we like when we buy the brand new phone and we take picture and we love it that's not reality guys but that's the type of culture that, that, that we, we live in, where we love perfection or this idea of something better than actually reality. And, and so it's, 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 it's easy to understand why we actually love success. We actually love, and we don't like blemishes. We don't like things that are unedited. Which means in large, our culture does terribly with the idea of pain and suffering. Did you make the jump with me? I know I went through, totally nerded out my technology, came back here. But the idea is, we don't know, modern culture, we don't know how to deal with suffering or idea of pain or blemish, something that is not so well edited. Yet, if you've lived life, if you're not like a little child, maybe even little children, you know suffering is the inevitable consequences of living. This week, this morning, as you're driving here, 
in your car. It was raining, traffic, fighting parking hazards. I don't know what you did this morning. No matter who you are, you could be the wealthiest person in this room. You could be the smartest person in the room. We all experience suffering. You know, being born as an infant child, being born into the world, that is experiencing, that is a painful, traumatic experience for the, for the baby. Yet again, our modern, secular culture, Western culture, largely, this is what I'm talking about, does horribly with the idea of suffering. Much worse than, and, and, and really much worse than other cultures, the Eastern culture and other cultures, that, like our Western culture, we, we do far less. We don't know what to do with suffering. Because most other cultures, even today, modern cultures, most other cultures outside of the West, the meaning of life is something beyond life. Whether it's the idea of going to heaven to live with God or the idea of the, the cycle, reincarnation, to enter eternity or others. Most of the cultures we think about life, the importance of life beyond this world. But Western culture, the meaning of life really is to, I, I talk about you know, modern day Pixar, Pixar movies. Right, it's really to be free to choose what makes you happy in this life. You've, you've, you've heard of this. I mean, I think YOLO is like outdated. It's like my generation, but I, this is the best example I give. Like YOLO, you only live once. So when suffering, when we live in this mindset of you only live once, you got one shot at life, you gotta, you gotta enjoy everything you got and, and enjoy the freedom to make your own decisions and choices. When suffering interrupts that perceived reality, we really don't know how to process any type of pain or suffering in a healthy way. Many simply see it as a form of roadblock, distraction, or senseless pain. Or worse, the end of life. But the Christian theology, when you biblically, when you, when you read scripture and, and what Jesus says and what the biblical writers say, the, the Christian theology of suffering is much more robust. And it's really unique compared to even all other worldviews and religions. You see, for one, if you believe in karma, karma says if you are, you are suffering, if you're suffering, it's because something you did in another life. But if you're doing well, if you are rich and healthy and wealthy, they tell you it's because probably you did something well in the other life. But the biblical perspective is different. When you read stories of Job and other biblical characters, good people don't all have more pleasant lives. While bad people all have more difficult lives. That's simply not true. Ecclesiastes talks about that. Which means, biblically, if, if, if as Christians, we cannot assume that if we are suffering, it's a direct punishment for some wrong, do, wrong things that we have done in the past. But we do that all the time, right? Something goes wrong, like, oh, I got to go to church. I, 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 it's because I, I miss church. It's because I, I haven't gone to church. I do that. I, that's my natural thing. Oh, man, it's because I, I didn't read my Bible. Or if you are living well, wealthy, great job, great family, 
you cannot assume that God is rewarding you for your good behavior. I know some people justify their lifestyle because they're experiencing success. God must bless me. God must bless this church. It's much more complex than that. If you read scripture, it's much more complex than simply because you live, you, you do good things, there's a reward. You do bad things, there's punishment. No. You see, in Christianity, on, on one hand, we see God is absolutely sovereign over suffering. It's never out of His control. It's always part of His plan. Yet on the other hand, we see God who entered suffering Himself. See, no other religion or worldviews claim that their God is both sovereign and has experienced suffering. And this is why, knowing what we know about biblical understanding of suffering, we can be realistic about pain and suffering, yet remain utterly hopeful. And this is why Paul and the other biblical writers, Peter and others, continue to encourage us through Scripture to rejoice in suffering. And, and I'm not here to minimize your pain, your struggles. Through the pandemic, you, you talk to anyone, someone will tell you, uh, everybody will tell you their own journey of suffering and struggling. Something went bad or some struggle, relational, financial, physical. And many of us have gone through something really, really hard and difficult over the last several years. Some of us have been physically sick. I had two back surgeries during, during COVID. And being sick during COVID is like another, it's terrible because you have to do COVID tests. They won't, I had to be, um, uh, I had to get surgery and be alone at the hospital because my wife couldn't come. All this crazy drama. Um, Relational challenges, being home, maybe you spent too much time with your family. I did. I, I spent way too much time with my family during COVID where I, I got annoyed at one point. I was like, ah! Perhaps you, on a more serious note, you've lost someone uh, that you love. We know somebody that's lost somebody over the last several years. And perhaps you're still in the middle of it. But friends, one thing one amazing thing about Christian theology of suffering is that you are not alone in your suffering. And your experience is not mere senseless pain. He might not explain to you. I'll talk about this later. He might not, God might not explain to you why you've gone through something, something you did. But one thing that is very clear through Scripture is that He is with you. And he knows you and, and he, he walks with you. Amen? That's why Paul can say, I rejoice in my suffering. Second, reality of suffering. Right, verse 24, in my flesh, Paul says, in my suffering, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Verse 24 is so hard. It's, I spend can, I, can you believe, I spent five hours on this verse, trying to understand this verse. Most scholars argue that verse 24 is probably the most difficult passage to understand in all of the letter. Maybe all of New Testament scripture, actually. 
But I'm not going to bore you. I spent five hours for you so that you don't have to. But I'm not going to bore you with all the Greek. Like I looked at my notes. I was like, okay. I was like nerding out in Greek. I'm, I'm going to keep it simple here. The word fulfill, verse 24, this is like where it gets really, really confusing for most scholars. This word is a very rare double compound word made up of two prepositions, anti and anna, plus the verb to fill up. But really, when you boil down to it, there's like 20 different ways to translate this phrase. Really, there's two, it comes down to two major ways to understand what Paul is saying. One, Paul is saying, I am filling up in place of. Second, it's I'm filling up in response to. Two major ways to read it, and different scholars argue differently about it. And at this point, in these two options, grammatically, it's anyone's guess between the, these two options. Grammatically, you can't really draw another, like, a certain conclusion about one definition over another. But when we place verse 24 in its context, it becomes clear. You can't read that, but basically, <laughs> why did I think you could read that? Um, basically, verses 15 to 23, Paul has laid out. The, the argument that Christ is supreme. The whole section from verses 15 to 23, Paul is really arguing for the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. So really, if you read verse 24 in the context of its letter, it could only mean really one thing. The latter meaning of Paul is filling up something in response to not on behalf of because obviously Paul is not saying he is making up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He just spent all of chapter 1 confronting the false teachers, encouraging the believers who insist, these false teachers who insisted that Christ was not sufficient. He says it over and over again. He is sufficient. He is the creator. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who has saved and rescued and truly received us. So it makes absolutely no sense that he would contradict himself immediately following that argument by saying the redemptive suffering of Christ requires more. That would be contradictory. Therefore, it is not that there is anything lacking in the atoning suffering of Christ. Paul is not saying, I'm going to make up what Christ did not finish. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in response to what Christ has done, I'm actually going to suffer as well. Also notice in verse 24, the word suffering transitions to affliction in verse 24. And nowhere in the New Testament scripture, the word affliction is attributed to Christ and His atoning work. So it's very clear, it's not talking about atonement, it's not about fulfilling what was lacking in in Christ's work, but it's actually in response to seeing the suffering. I'm joining in the suffering. So in verse 24, what really Paul is speaking about is the inevitable and necessary experiences that the God's kingdom will face as it confronts the dominion of darkness. Right? Guys, simple. As Christians, when we try to be faithful in our workplace, 
the way we handle business, the way we handle relationships, the way we try to honor God with our decisions and choices, when we take that and go into secular places, we're going to face oppositions. That, that's just reality. If not, something, something's not right. So, so, so really what Paul is talking about is the inevitable, necessary experiences that God's kingdom will face as it confronts the dominion of darkness. Revelation 6, 9 and 11, right? The writer of Revelation, most people believe is John. John talks about this. I won't read it. But about what John is saying is we're going to struggle. We're going to go through times of tribulation and trials. So Paul is not sugarcoating the reality of suffering that these men and women will face to remain faithful to Christ. You know, I, I grew up as a pastor's kid. Uh, before this is before we immigrated to America, I was like a young kid, maybe seven years old. I was getting a haircut. I don't know if my mom was with, with me or not. And the hairdresser, like my dad was a pastor in a small town, like Kangwondo, right? The, the, the haircut lady was like bullying me. Like, I don't know why. Maybe she didn't like Christians, but she's like, hey, you're a pastor's kid, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm seven years old, but okay, we'll have this conversation, right? And she's like, if, you, if I go to church, will God make me rich? Guess what I said? I said, yeah, go make you. I, I didn't know what to say. I was seven years old. I was like, yeah, God will make you rich. I remember like, and, and then every time I went to go get a haircut, the lady won't leave me alone. And I realized it's so easy for us to sugarcoat Christianity, right? This idea of sugarcoating Christianity of um, you come to church, you give, you serve, you go on missions. God's going to bless your business. God's going to bless your health. God's going to bless your family. God's going to bless your children. But when you read scripture, none of that is actually biblically founded. Yes, there is a blessing of God. There is God remembering, honoring our sacrifice and things like that. But that, that's different from sugarcoating Christianity. And Paul says, I'm not going to sugarcoat Christianity. In the same way, friends, as we continue to engage our workplace, our culture, our neighbors, and, 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 and doing it without compromising our values and our beliefs, do not be surprised when you are tested, when you are challenged, when you are confronted. Actually, find comfort when you are confronted at work, when you're confronted outside of this community because you know you are on the right path. That's really what Paul is encouraging the Christians. In 2 Corinthians 4, 10, 12, Paul helps us understand what he's trying to say in Colossians 1. The same guy wrote both letters in 2 Corinthians 4, 10. He's, he's expounding on this idea, like jars of clay, and he says in verse 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So that death is at, at work in us, but life is at work in you. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So for Paul, he can truly rejoice in suffering because he knows when death 
is coming at him. When death is at work against him, life is also at work as well. So friends, yes, we will face trials and challenges, but also in those trials and challenges, know that life is at work. You may think you've had a terrible week. You might be like, oh man, I failed miserably. I hate my... You, know, you may be disappointed and maybe in the way you, you could have stood up for Christ or in the way you could have done better. But even that struggle, even feeling that struggle, know that there is transformative work that is being done in your heart. Don't give up. Continue in that place. And really, it's, it's Jesus in our suffering, right? It's becoming like him, experiencing his life. That's, that's what Paul says in that text, that Jesus is with us in our suffering, in our transformative work. Finally, that's the reality of suffering as Christians. Finally, the call to suffer together. Verse 28, uh, Paul Says him, we proclaim, talking about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul talked about the joy of suffering, the reality of suffering, and now he's calling us, the church, to suffer with each other. And and, and really Paul begins by saying, This is why we we gather. We, to proclaim Christ, to warn everyone, to teach everyone, so that we can become mature. This is why Paul's traveled hundreds of miles through shipwreck, being hungry, being stoned. This is, this is why he has endured violences upon violences, stoning, arrest, humiliation. This is why he chose to work as a tent maker on the side to support his ministry. And this is why he writes... Verse 25, to make the word of God fully known so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The phrase to make the word of God fully known literally reads in, in original Greek this idea of completing the work of God, the word of God. To lay out the word of God fully. So, so every week I spend 20 to 25 hours alone in my local cafe, like just trying to unpack Colossians 1 verse, Colossians 1 verse 35, I gave up in the middle. I was like, I'll come back tomorrow. I don't get it. I read and read and read. I'm like, what is this talking about? And I do that not because I love being alone in a coffee shop and the lady's like, you order, you order one coffee, you're going to be here for five hours, right? Give me nunchi. Right? It's, it's a lot, a lot going on. I, I don't do that because I love that because this is what I've been called to do. And, 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 and it's tempting even for me. I, I was just sharing this with a, a mentor of mine. I was like, it's so tempting for me as I prep every week to not teach from a letter like Colossians because it's so heavy and it's so complex that it's, it's easy to tell a story about Jonah. It's, it's easy to tell a story about Ruth. Sometimes I'm like, it's tempting for me to lean against difficult and hard texts like Colossians. But I'm reminded through the words of Paul that I'm not here to give you a nice Christian version of TED Talk. 20 minutes, nice. I, I do draw for you guys. You guys should appreciate that. Um, or some sort of motivational speech. 
to do more, to give more, to do missions. I have one job. This, this is what I live for, guys. That is to open up Scripture. Even though it takes me five hours to go through verse 24, I'm willing to do that because I, I still could hear my professors from seminary, Dr. Quinsbury, Dr. Byun, Dr. Armstead, just drilling in me. Sangmin, don't preach your idea. Sangmin, don't bring your idea. Don't, don't give me some advice. Preach the word. Preach the word. Don't get caught up in trying to say nice, nice little, little slogans. No, preach the word. And this is what Paul says in verse 28. Him we proclaim. Why? why? Why should I preach the word? Why should I spend? Why should Paul endure all those things to preach the word? So that everyone would become mature. That's the goal of our community. Guys, we're not here just to be friends with each other. That's great. We're not just here to find other like, like-minded people. We're not here so that we could have some nice Sunday experience. We're here because God has called us to be one community where we can grow and mature and become more and more like Christ. Yet if we're not careful, it's easy to make Christian community about something else. I've seen one too many groups of Christian friends who would gather regularly, celebrate milestones, Celebrate birthdays, travel together, eat together, hang out all the time, yet remain spiritually immature. Discipleship, guys, discipleship doesn't just happen. Like you hang out, grab dinner with somebody. You're not like always like, oh, I got to talk about Jesus. No, it, it takes intentionality. Otherwise, it's so easy to just be another, like other community with Christianity sprinkled here and there. We'll pray for the meal and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll gossip and say, we'll pray for that person. Too honest. But there's nothing more tragic than groups of Christians that have known each other for years and years. I've, I know these groups. But they do not challenge one another and remain silent in the face of sin and failures. And Paul says, no. You warn each other. You toil. You agonize for this. The word toil in that text is this idea of agony. Like imagine, okay, you join. You want to get in shape? You join a CrossFit gym or you join F45, whatever the gym. You know these like group workouts? You join, right? And imagine you go to these, these groups and they're really friendly and all they do is literally after workout, they just go eat. They, they love good food. They go to Itaewon. They go on like pizza tours, burger tours. Imagine like first week, you're like, oh, cool. They're like really welcoming. But after a while, what are you going to do? If you are serious about getting in shape, you're not going to that gym anymore because why? You're not working out. You're not getting in shape. But so many, so many Christian communities, we do that. Like we do the same thing. Where we just gather and we're happy and we hang out and we do things together. But really, there is no real challenge or, or, or commitment to each other. Because Paul says the, the goal is not just hanging out. The goal is not just growing old together. The goal is not 
Anything but maturity. We, we want to mature. Warning. He says it, he just lays it out. You got to warn each other and teach each other. Again, he says, I toil in this. I agonize over this because this is, I, I care. I genuinely care. You know, I'm only honest. Like, I'll tell you, like, I'm only honest to my closest friends. And they don't like me. A lot of times they don't like me because honestly, it's hard for me to be honest with my, like, I, I have a bunch of friends that are single. They shouldn't be, right? Like, they, they, you know, but I tell them, like, this is the reason why you're single, dude. You are a terrible dude. I'll tell them. And they're, they're shocked or they're angry. They won't talk to me, but I'm like, dude, I'm just going to tell you because I care. Nobody else is going to tell you. They're going to just walk away. But I'm going to tell you because I don't want this relationship to last. But that's the type of, and I hate doing that. Like, I, Please, I do not like telling one of my closest friends that you're a terrible dude. I don't. But it's because I care. And, and really what, what Paul, please don't tell each other like they're terrible. But what, what Paul is really encouraging us to, yeah, if you really want to be a church, if you really want to be a genuine community, you got to be able to challenge one another and warn each other. Agonize over one another. To, to go that extra mile. To, to sit with people who are struggling. Because in our modern day culture, it's so easy to just walk away. We could just add another friend on Instagram. We can just follow somebody else. But Paul says, no. You sit down with that person who is struggling and, and lovingly challenge that person to tell each other even the things that they may not want to hear. In verse 20, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, let me wrap up um, our time. Paul concludes with this, I struggle with his energy and, and the work that he, he does in me, right? Rejoicing in suffering, reality of suffering, call to suffer together. And Paul says, not by my own power, but the power of the one who has sent me. Friends, it's not, Friends, it's Jesus' joy, it's Jesus' sacrifice, it's Jesus' power that allows us to truly agonize over each other. Christ in us, and he says it's the hope of the glory in our text. Because if Jesus didn't die and rose again, our suffering would really be senseless pain. I've been Christian for 27 years, I've counted, met the went to the Lord at 13, not went to the Lord, I came to the Lord at 13, 27 years. And I've had my, we've talked about suffering, I've had my seasons of pain and suffering as a pastor's kid, growing up, as an immigrant kid, you know, all that stuff. And I can honestly say 90% of what I've experienced, those painful experiences, looking back, I could say that's been invaluable in shaping me to become the man I am today. I'm thankful for those experiences, 90%. But if I'm honest, it's the 10% of those experiences that I can't make sense of why God allowed those experiences in my life. I'll be honest. 90% I'm good. 10% I'm like, God, I'm still angry about what happened. You have them. I have them. Job, at the end of his journey with God, God does not tell him why he had lost everything at one point in his life. So how do you and I resolve that 10% of whatever that percentage for you, but for me, 
are the feelings of anger and confusion of, of suffering that we faced. As cliche, 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 cliche as it sounds, we look to Jesus. Not Jesus who quiets the storm, because we love that Jesus. But Jesus who hung on that tree, Roman tree. You see, knowing that we have a Savior who has experienced all of human suffering. He knows what it means to be betrayed by his closest friends. Someone kisses him, he's arrested because that dude betrayed him. He knows what it means to be abandoned. He knows what it means to be misunderstood, wrongly charged and tried. What it means to be in pain both emotionally and physically. Knowing that, knowing that's the Christ that we see through Scripture, that humbles me. And only that reality of who Christ is, when I see that Christ hanging on the tree for my sins, for my, my shame, then I'm okay to say, Lord, I'll shut up. I got questions, but it's okay. Because I know you know, and I know you've gone through even greater things, greater painful things than I, I've ever experienced. Amen? Let me, let me pray for us. Father, suffering is um, reality for so many of us. And, and really, Lord, many of us in, in this room are struggling with something. Uh, injustice at work. Physical illness. Relational Challenges at home, at work, at other places. But Lord, uh, I just pray you would continue to meet us there. That image of you carrying us through our own journey of pain and suffering. Lord, that, that's what we hold on to. And remind us once again, Jesus, that you aren't just sitting in heaven telling us how to survive or move on from our pain or suffering. You, you came in. You became one of us. You took on flesh. You took on death. Remind us once again, Lord, and, and, and renew us once again, Lord. If anyone is still angry about their past, still confused about why they had to experience certain things in their lives, would you humble us? And that sounds harsh, but, but would you humble us? It's a mystery, the, the glory of the gospel that we hold on to this afternoon. Just same we pray. Amen.